Our Father, we come to your word today with humble hearts. And many of us come before you broken. Many of us come before you discouraged. Many of us come feeling empty. And so we ask, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would feed us your holy word and fill us with your word, that we may know you, that we may know you better than we have ever known you, that we may love you more than we've ever loved you, and that we may value you more than we've ever valued you. For the glory of Christ, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our study of the parables. So if you have your Bibles with you, we will be in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 today. Every first Sunday of the month, we, uh, we are going through the parables. The rest of the month, we go through the book of Genesis, but that kind of gives us one foot in each of the Testaments. Imagine that tonight you were to go home and turn on the television to watch the evening news. And the headline story was that scientists had discovered that at some time in your lifetime, yes, your lifetime, we're, we're talking personal here, and sometimes in your lifetime, there is going to be some catastrophic event. Sometime in your lifetime, there's going to be an earthquake that's going to be so large, so catastrophic, that it will leave you without food or water for at least three months. Now, we know that there is some big earthquake that they keep talking about that's going to happen eventually sometime in, uh, in eastern Washington, but they say it's like in the next hundred years. I want you to imagine that they say that it's specifically during your lifetime. But, they say, you can survive. It's possible to survive it, but only if you're ready for it. And the way to be ready for it is to prepare for it and stay prepared. Because if you don't stay prepared and it happens, boy, you're in trouble. Now, let's say that you're the praying type, and since you're kind of skeptical of this news report, I mean, how do they know anything about your life, right? And so you're kind of skeptical. You start praying about it, and you ask God to, to tell you if it's true, and you're begging Him for a sign, and instantly you get a text message that says, oh, it's true. It's true. It's, it's going to happen, so be ready. Love God. So now you're, you're convinced that this catastrophic earthquake is going to happen, but you don't know when. Sometime in your life. That's all you know. Sometime in your life. So what do you do? Well, if you're really convinced that it's true, if you're really concerned that this is going to happen, you will prepare. But the question is, what happens as time goes on? How prepared are you going to be in 20 years if it hasn't happened yet? How prepared, how ready are you going to be in 30 years if it still hasn't happened yet? How sure would you be at that point that it is going to happen during your lifetime? Now, this isn't a realistic scenario, I understand. But there is a realistic scenario that each and every one of us will have to face sooner or later. And that is coming face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, either in his return or when he calls you home. Every single one of us will have to come face to face with Christ. And if you are not in Christ, 
a catastrophic event on earth will look like heaven in comparison. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, and it's always very interesting to look at the reaction of the disciples when Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. They start getting really antsy, really anxious. And if you remember the the prophecies that we saw in the book of Zechariah, you understand why they would get anxious. But on this occasion, in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples want to know, as Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, Jesus, Lord, what is going to be what are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age see that's what they think is about to happen as jesus comes to the mount of olives and jesus starts preaching to them warning them of things which could lead them to think that the end is near but then he says concerning the day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the Father only. And he would go on to say, therefore, the application, in light of this truth, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And this sets the occasion, this sets the stage for a series of parables that Jesus gives about his imminent return at the end of the age. And whatever your view of end times is, maybe you're an amillennialist, maybe you're a premillennialist, maybe you're somewhere in between, whatever the case, every Christian affirms that Jesus is coming back, that his work is not done, that he will come back. And so for that occasion, we have to understand that no matter what your eschatology is, no matter what your view of end times is, the message is the same. You must be ready. Jesus sternly instructs us to be ready when he returns. Will that happen in your lifetime? I don't know. There have been scores of people who thought that it would and were sure that it would, and that was over a thousand years ago. So it certainly could, but even if it doesn't, you will still have to stand before him and give an account for your life. And not one of us knows when even that will be. So either way, whether it's in his return, or whether it's when he calls us home and our time on earth is done, we must be ready. And we must stay ready. And that's going to be the theme of this parable of the ten bridesmaids. And so we look at the, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. We're just going to read this all uh, at the same time, and then we'll look at, uh, look at it in bits and pieces. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or bridesmaids, depending on what your translation says. Uh, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins, bridesmaids, rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came 
And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Christ is going to come back. Christ will return, and his return is imminent. And what that word means is that it could happen at any time. It could happen at any time. There is nothing other than the sovereign will of God which prevents Jesus from coming back. The Father knows when. We don't. It's not for us to know. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The things that are revealed are for us to know. The things that are not revealed are for God to know. This is one of those things, the return of Christ, when it's going to be, is one of those things that is not revealed to us. It is not for us to know. It could happen at any time. There are no signs. There are no events that must take place, that must transpire before He returns. And so the challenge is for us not only to be ready, but to stay ready. Because a lot of people look at heaven as fire insurance. And so they think, oh, okay, Jesus is coming back and and coming back soon, and so I'd better be ready, I'd, I'd better believe. And then 20 years later, they start losing sight of that. And as they start losing sight of that reality, they start falling away from the faith. And so the challenge for us is to live our lives in light of the reality of Christ's imminent return. That He could return at any moment. He could return today. This parable was given for the sake of emphasizing the point that the time for preparation, the time to be ready for His return, is always the present moment. It's never tomorrow. It's never on your deathbed, and it's never any time in between. The time to prepare is always now. That is one of the points of this parable. You need to be ready now because tomorrow might be too late. When the day of His appearing comes, the time for preparation will be gone. And to fail to prepare today, to fail to prepare and be ready right now, is to bet eternity on the the idea that He might not return for a long time, or that He's not returning at all. And to bet eternity, to bet your eternal destiny on that, is entirely foolish. Now, if I thought about it enough, and if, if you thought about it enough, you know, we could probably think of dozens and dozens of times in our lives when we weren't prepared for something. Maybe it was a pop quiz in school. I mean, that's kind of the idea. You're not ready for it, and so the teacher wants to know what you know. So maybe it was a pop quiz. Maybe you drove your car uh, until you ran out of gas, thinking that you could just play chicken with the E on, on your gas gauge. You know, maybe you ran out of oil in your car. In every case where you've been unprepared, where you've been caught unprepared, you probably made a very serious presumption. You presumed that you didn't need to be prepared. <clears throat> and so the Lord Jesus, when He talks about His return. He doesn't tell us when it's going to be because He doesn't want us to presume that we can just wait until that time to make ourselves ready. He 
explicitly forbids that type of presumption when it comes to his return. The story of the ten bridesmaids illustrates the utter foolishness of not being prepared to come face to face with Jesus. The wedding party in this story is obviously enormous. Ten bridesmaids, that's a lot of bridesmaids. I I can honestly say I've never even seen a wedding uh, other than like celebrity weddings where you've got ten bridesmaids up there. But it's also a very important event is, is what we can understand from that. The fact that it's so big tells us that it's also a very important event. But then the story takes a very strange twist, something that would be a bride's worst nightmare something that would be a bride's worst-case scenario. The bridegroom isn't there yet. He's delayed. He's, He's really delayed. The arrival of the bridegroom will mark the beginning of the wedding feast. But without a bridegroom, there is no wedding feast. And nobody is sure where he is or when he is going to be there. He is coming but nobody knows when. Now, marriage looked slightly different in first century Judaism than it looks today. Uh, While the, the parameters of marriage and the significance of marriage and the definition of marriage are all the same because they were all, it was all instituted by God and only God has the right to define what He has instituted. Nevertheless, the customs which surround marriage will vary from culture to culture. And so we need to understand that marriage had three steps in first century Judaism. It had three steps. First, there was the promise of marriage. The promise of marriage. This is similar to what we call the engagement period of marriage. It was a time when the families would make arrangements and, and uh, sometimes exchange gifts with one another. There would be a, some, some type of agreement between the two families. Excuse me. The second stage was the betrothal stage in which the couple would publicly exchange vows, but that did not finalize the marriage just yet. At that point, the man and woman would enter into a legal contract to be married, a legal commitment to be married, but they would not be married just yet. It wouldn't be finalized or consummated until the wedding feast. The wedding feast was the height of the whole process. But there was a period of waiting between the second and the third stage, between betrothal and the wedding feast. And sometimes that could be a couple months. Sometimes it could be several months. Sometimes it could be a year or more. But only after the wedding feast would the marriage be consummated, and only after the wedding feast would the husband and wife live together as husband and wife. And so what we see here is that this parable takes place between the second and third stage, between betrothal and the wedding feast. And it actually takes place on the day that the wedding feast is supposed to to start. But this is a beautiful and vivid picture of Christ and His church, if you understand this parable. And so as we consider this parable, it may be helpful to break it down into three sections. Number one, we're going to see the introduction of the bridesmaids, and we're also going to see their character. Some of them are wise, some of them are foolish. Secondly, we're going to see the wisdom and the foolishness, what what it is that makes them wise, what it is that makes them foolish. 
And third, we're going to see the reward of preparation contrasted with the punishment, the consequence of not being ready, of not being prepared. So first we look at the introduction. Jesus immediately tells us that half of the ten bridesmaids are foolish and half of them are wise. And what is it that sets them apart? Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. So the the foolish ones went to meet the bridegroom, but they brought no oil with them. Look at verse 4. The wise bridesmaids brought flasks of oil with them. They took flasks of oil with their lamps. Part of the responsibility of being a bridesmaid in first century Jewish culture was to meet and welcome and escort the bridegroom to the wedding feast from the edge of town, carrying torches and lamps to light the way. These festivals, these feasts would often start at night because people would come from long distances. Uh, They would travel from long distances to partake of the, the wedding feast. And so to accommodate all these people who were making long trips that took maybe a day or so, they would start the festival at night, the feast at night. And part of it was they would parade through the streets with torches and lamps into the place where the wedding feast was taking place. But in this story, the bridegroom is delayed. He's really, really delayed for an extended period of time. And so what happens? Well, we'll see in verse 5 that all of the uh, bridesmaids end up getting drowsy and falling asleep. Both the foolish and the wise get drowsy and fall asleep. The question that this part of the parable should force us to ask, should prompt us to ask, is whom do these bridesmaids represent? Well, we should note that the parable begins with Jesus saying, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, the bridesmaids represent the church, but only outwardly. Only outwardly. That is, they represent those who identify with the church and have made some sort of profession or confession of faith. But one of the main themes that we need to see whenever we're looking at Matthew's book, Matthew's testimony, one of his main themes throughout his narrative is that there are false professors mixed in with true professors of faith. That is, there are some who will identify with the church. There will, there will be some who claim to be Christians, and yet it is only lip service. Their profession is false. Their profession is not legitimate. For many, being a Christian is a profession, a superficial profession that is outward only. It's only on the surface. It hasn't penetrated the depths of their heart. They are outwardly making this profession, but inward they have not been transformed. They have not been born again. James Montgomery Boyce said this about this passage. He said, quote, There are people within the church who have heard the invitation of Christ, have responded somewhat, but who are yet not ready to meet Him. End quote. What a terrifying thought. That there are some within the church 
who have made some sort of outward profession, but their tares, not wheat. They're false professors, not true professors. These are religious people externally. These are people who identify as Christians. They might even go to church on a regular basis. They might even read their Bibles on a regular basis. Maybe they have some sort of prayer life. Maybe they even preach week in and week out. But they have never placed legitimate, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have never been born again. They have never been regenerated. They continue to place their faith in something or someone else. They continue to place their faith in themselves, their efforts, their goodness, their works, or whatever as the basis of their salvation. And for that reason, we should see very clearly that this parable forces us to examine ourselves to look at our lives and to consider what we, what we believe. And not only what we believe, but what we do. Is there fruit in our lives? What is it that we trust? What or whom have we placed our faith in? Because everybody has trusted in something or someone. Are you living in a way that demonstrates a consistent readiness for His return? If you came face to face with him tonight, would you be ready? That's an important question. Because let's face it, you don't know that you won't. You don't know that you won't come face to face with him tonight. Not a single one of us knows that. And that's a primary part of the point of this story. It is foolish to be unprepared at any given moment. The wisest thing that you can do is to make yourself ready. Right now. Today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until your deathbed. It won't be easier to get yourself ready today. The wisest thing you can do is be ready right now. The time for preparation is right now. The time is coming when it will be too late to prepare. You don't know when that time will be. You don't know when it's going to be too late to prepare. And so are you prepared? Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Think about what you believe. Think about whether or not you're bearing good fruit. Are you prepared? Have you truly repented of trusting in anything or anyone other than Christ for your salvation? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness and perfectly happy there? Are you finding comfort and joy in Christ alone? Or are you finding comfort and joy in something that this world has to offer? In sin, in autonomy, in rebellion against God, in the joys of the flesh. To repent of sin and believe in Christ is the wisest thing you can do. To put that off is the most foolish thing you can do. You must repent and believe. That is how you prepare. To walk in sin and live for anything or anyone other than Christ is the height of complete foolishness. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn from your sin. Now is the time to believe in Jesus and nothing else, Christ alone, 
Now's the time to prepare. As we look at verses 5 to 10, we see the complete foolishness of five of the bridesmaids, half of the bridesmaids, contrasted with the wisdom of the other five, the other half. Verse 5 tells us that all of them got drowsy and fell asleep. But Matthew doesn't indicate that there's any reason whatsoever to condemn them or, or to chastise them or, or that this was a bad thing necessarily. He, he doesn't even focus on whether that was the right or wrong things, uh, right or wrong thing. Both the wise and the foolish fall asleep. But here's the point. Going to sleep unprepared. To be a bridesmaid who knows that they're unprepared, who knows that the bridegroom isn't there yet, and yet to fall asleep is folly. Rather than sleeping, the foolish bridesmaids should have been preparing. And that's what makes them foolish. And so ironically, it's the delay of the bridegroom which turns out to be the catalyst, which turns out to be the the very thing which reveals which of the bridesmaids are wise and which of the bridesmaids are foolish. And what is the factor that distinguishes the wise from the foolish? It's the failure of the foolish ones to consider, just to consider the possibility that the bridegroom would arrive later than they had expected. And when he doesn't arrive when they had expected, they should have thought to themselves, man, I'm getting drowsy, I'm getting tired, but I can't go to sleep unless I prepare first. So I'll go and get some oil and then I can sleep. The foolish bridesmaids assume that they can just get ready when the bridegroom arrives. Or, they don't care. They just don't care. And that's entirely possible. They they might not even care that they should be prepared when He comes. And so finally, look at verse 6 with me. The arrival of the bridegroom is announced. At midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. It's announced, and only half of the bridesmaids have enough oil to sustain the light of their torches, their lamps. And so the ones who don't have any oil turn to the ones who do have oil, and they say, share with us, give us some of of what you have. Sharing is caring. And, and the wise bridesmaids respond in the negative. There's not enough to go around. So go get your own, is what they say. And at this point, we'd better understand exactly what the oil represents. It's saving faith. The oil is saving faith. And while it might seem rude, it might seem uncharitable, it might even seem catty for the wise bridesmaids to refuse to share their oil with the foolish bridesmaids, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story goes beyond that. It points to something beyond that. It points to the reality that God's grace is non-transferable on our part. Only God only God can do it. We can't, we can't take the grace that God has given us and impute it to somebody else. No, only God can impute grace to somebody. Only God 
can impute righteousness to somebody. So they're asking the wrong people. I had a friend several years ago with whom I I shared the gospel regularly, consistently, repeatedly, but he hated it, which is exactly why I say I had a friend several years ago. He hated the gospel, absolutely hated it. But here's the crazy thing about it, the insanity of it. He, He knew that he would have to stand before God someday. He was confident that he would have to stand before God one day and give an account for his life. And he knew and he believed that he needed a mediator to stand between himself and a holy, righteous, just God. He knew he needed a mediator, but he did not want it to be Christ. And so he said to me, when you get to heaven, will you put in a good word for me? I said, this isn't a nightclub that we're talking about. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. You do need a mediator. But it can't be me. It has to be Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. If you want God's grace, I can't give you mine. I, I require a lot, trust me. I can't give you any mine. I, I don't have enough to spare. God's grace can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in the Lord. I can't give you God's grace. I can't make you be ready for His return or for coming face to face with Him. I can't prepare for you. All I can do is tell you, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. The time to prepare is always the present moment. On the day that Christ returns, many who claimed to be Christians and who genuinely maybe believed that they were Christians will be revealed to be foolish, false professors. And on that day, it will be too late. On that day, the time to have prepared will have passed. The time for preparation. The time to repent and put faith in Christ will have passed on that day. Oh, my dear friends, if you could only see, please understand that the only thing worse than being unprepared is to be unprepared and not even realize it until it's too late. Please see that the only thing worse than being completely lost in darkness is to be completely lost in darkness and to believe that you have been found. Imagine a child in the woods, lost, darkness all around them, no idea which direction is which. And as they know they're lost, they're calling out, but then they imagine that somebody comes to their aid. And so what do they do? They stop calling out. The only thing worse than being separated from God's saving grace is to be separated from His grace and to not even have the wisdom to look at yourself and realize it. 
Now is the time to examine yourselves and to prepare for His glorious appearance. Now is the time to make yourself ready to come face to face with Him. Now is the time to repent and believe in Christ. I can't make that decision for you. Your mom and your dad can't make that decision for you. The principal of your school can't make that decision for you. Your boss can't make that decision for you. Nobody can make that decision for you. You must prepare yourself. You must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. All you can do is see that you are lost without Him and turn from your sin and put saving faith in Christ while you still can. Look at verses 11 to 13 with me. In verses 11 to 13, we see the reward for being prepared contrasted with the consequences of failing to prepare. The wise bridesmaids who had oil for their lamps were taken into the wedding banquet with the bridegroom while the foolish ones are off trying to figure out where to get some oil. And verse 11 shows us the consequence of the foolishness of the five who were not ready. They were locked out of the wedding feast. Afterward, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're locked out. From outside of locked doors, they're crying out to him, Lord, Lord, let us in. And what's his response? Look at verse 12. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. That should sound kind of familiar if you're familiar with Matthew's book. See, this is a picture of heaven. The, the wedding feast here is, is a picture of heaven. That's what the wedding feast symbolizes. This is actually an illustration of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What did the bridesmaids here say to him? Lord, Lord, let us in. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 22, On that day many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? See, in the parable, the bridegroom says, I don't know You. And what does Jesus tell us that He will say to these people who claim to have done all these great things in His name? Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's lawlessness? Lawlessness is the opposite of righteousness. Lawlessness is acting like there's no need for you to obey anything. Lawlessness is anarchy. It's acting as if there's, there's no law that restrains you from doing absolutely anything. It's living in habitual sin as if God never gave you any commands to obey. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? And the implication there is that you have no business calling Him Lord 
If you're walking in lawlessness, if you're walking in sin, when the Lord Jesus comes again, and He is coming again, it will be too late to repent and turn from your lawlessness and to place faith in Christ. See, every one of us was born into a state of lawlessness. Every one of us was born as a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say a few have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say most have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let me paraphrase that for you. Even the most religious person in the world has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even somebody who comes to church and reads their Bible and prays regularly has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even the most moral person on the face of the planet has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even the most kind-hearted person on the planet has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even the most generous person on the planet has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. All have fallen short. And to fall short of God's perfect standards of righteousness brings us collectively and individually under the curse of sin and the wrath of God. But Christ who was fully God and fully man, born under the law, fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly. He never slipped up. He never had one stray thought, one stray deed. He did not fall short. Christ did not sin. Christ did not fall short of the glory of God. Christ was perfectly righteous. And you must stand before Christ in His own righteousness. That's what we saw last month. Or you will not be ready to see Him. You will not be prepared to see Him, whether that's in His return or when, it's when your life on earth has passed. And you only have one life to prepare. Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once. Once. And after that comes judgment. Let's look at Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's lawlessness, by the way. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see that? There's a reason that we've been redeemed. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That doesn't just mean to forgive us. That means to rescue us from its grip. 
It means that we no longer walk in lawlessness, but we walk in righteousness. Not because of us, but because of God's grace. Because of God's transforming work inside of a person. This parable reminds us of the reality that that we're reading about there in Titus. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you waiting for His return? Are you prepared for His return? This parable reminds us that the time to prepare is the present moment. To heed that advice is wise. To ignore it is the height of foolishness. And so are you ready? Are you ready to come face to face with Christ? Have you repented and placed saving faith in Christ? Are you bearing good fruit? And I'm not saying let's look at what you've done for God. I'm saying has God wrought something in you? Has He wrought a change in you? Has He changed your nature? Has He given you new affections? Has He given you new desires that have produced good fruit in your life? It's not about your work. It's about God's work in you by grace through faith in Christ. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking with Christ? Or are you walking in sin? If you're not ready, the time is now. The time to prepare is right now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in the Lord today. Jesus concludes by saying, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch what? See how it's connected to this parable? Watch what? Watch your oil. Do you have faith? Do you have true saving faith? Are you believing? Are you repenting and believing every day? Watch your soul. Watch your attitudes. Watch your heart. Watch your motivations. That's what God's looking at. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The reality is, friends, this might be the last time you hear the gospel. Have you thought about that? Do you think about that every week? I think about that every week. This might be the last time I preach the gospel. So I better come strong. And even if it's not the last time that you hear the gospel, it's not going to be any easier for you to believe it later. It's not going to be any easier for you to come to Christ someday. If anything, what that will do is harden your heart. When you refuse God's offer of free Forgiveness and salvation in Christ. When you refuse that, it only makes your heart harder. And so tomorrow, or next week, or next year, or on your deathbed, it's going to be so much harder than it is today. So maybe you're asking, what does real faith look like? Let's look at Luke. Luke chapter 14. We get a good picture of what real faith looks like. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. 
We'll start at verse 25. He says, Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let's be very clear about what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is to be a Christian. They weren't called Christians yet. They weren't called Christians until the middle of Acts. At this point, the people who are faithful to Christ, at this point, the people who are following Christ are called disciples. They are Christians. They are learning to be like Jesus by following Him, and that is exactly what a Christian is. And Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be a Christian. And yet there are many who claim to be Christians who have refused to follow Christ, who have refused to meet what Jesus says here, who have refused to take up their cross, who have refused to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. Real faith does this. And again, I'm not talking about your work. I'm talking about God changing your desires, changing your nature so that you look at the world and you look at Christ and you say, I will give up absolutely everything for this Christ, for this Messiah. I will give up everything, anything you want to have Him. Jesus says, that's the type of person who's my disciple. Judas thought that he could follow Jesus without obeying everything, without obeying Him. Judas thought that he could follow Jesus without denying himself and taking up his cross. Judas didn't think he needed to. There are a lot of Christians who don't think they need to. But here's the thing. To claim to believe in Jesus without yielding to Him, without obeying Him, is to have the faith, if you want to call it that, of Judas. To follow after Him, to claim to be a disciple of His, without obedience, is to be no different than Judas. It's to be no different than the demons who believe in God and yet they shudder. There are Christians who say they believe in God, but they don't even have the wisdom to shudder and to tremble at the thought that they will have to stand before Him one day and give an account for every single thought, every single moment of their lives. To believe without yielding or obeying is to be unprepared. It's to have a faith that doesn't have the power to save. And the gospel has the power to save. Real faith is self-sacrificial for the glory 
of Christ. And that's not to say that you need to go out and sell everything and, and, and all that. What it's saying is that everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you possess, everything about you comes under the Lordship of Christ. And you see yourself not as the owner of those things, but as the steward who understands that these things that you have, every breath is a gift from God and you are a steward. So are you in Christ today? right now? Do you truly believe in Him? Would you surrender everything for Him? Would you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him to death if necessary? Is He your Lord? The preacher's worst nightmare is that the people who hear Him will one day be the same people who cry out, Lord, Lord, Did we not? And for him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You are a worker of lawlessness. If you aren't certain that you are in Christ, now is the time, today is the time to make certain. If today you have heard his voice, do not harden your hearts. But repent and believe. And receive the greatest gift. Yes, there is a cost for following Christ. But there is a greater cost for refusing to follow Christ. Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour when you will have to stand before Him. Either in glory or in condemnation. Listen, if you have never trusted in Christ... It does not matter what you have done. Christ will forgive you. He took every single sin of His people upon Himself. Every stray thought, every stray deed, every act of lawlessness was piled on Him on the cross. And in exchange, His righteousness is imputed, is piled on those who will trust in Him. The Gospel is a command to do this. It's a command to come to Christ, to come to the cross, to turn from your sin, to step out of the darkness, and to walk in the light. You will stand before Him, and He will be glorified in your life, either in your condemnation, or in your redemption. When that will be, when you stand before Him in judgment, is uncertain. But that it will happen is certain. And so I beg you to be ready. And don't leave here today unless you're ready to live your life for the glory of Christ, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Christ. There are many ways to be locked out of the wedding feast. There are many ways to avoid going to heaven, uh, to avoid going to heaven. But there is only one way in. And that is in Christ. So repent and believe in him today, right now. Because you have never had 
less time to prepare to come face to face with him than you have right now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word has power to convict and to transform. And so we ask, Lord, that your work would be done in us as we meditate on your word, as we go home and and think about these things, Lord, as we examine ourselves. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for loving us enough that you did not just leave us in the filth and the, the, the disgust of our sin, but you redeemed us from lawlessness by sending your Son and putting our sin on him and punishing him in our place as our substitute. What great love no heart, no mind could possibly entirely fathom. And so we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would live lives that glorify you, that exalt Christ. Wean us, Lord, from every false hope that we have in ourselves. Show us how filthy and and disgusting every other hope is in comparison to the glory of Christ, that we may be ready when he returns. Lord, we do look forward to that day when he does return. And we thank you that your timing is perfect on that. But we ask for grace upon grace upon grace to persevere in our walk with you until the day when we do come face to face with him. For the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.